0: South of the border Down Mexico way That's where I fell in love When the stars above Came out to play And now as I wander Hello there, all you expat wannabes. I'm Johnny Mueller, and you're listening to The Expat Files, living in Latin America, the show that tells you just what it's like to live, work, play, and or retire down here in Latin America. It's a mix of the good, the bad, the ugly, and the great, and it's all right here, so let's get started. Back in the saddle again. First up, remember that show we did a couple of weeks ago about the different skin colors in Latin America and how they refer to them? We were talking about the skin color referred to as morena, which really doesn't exist up in the first world. Now, have you ever heard anybody say, oh, do you know so-and-so? She's a morena. I lived the first couple decades of my life in Chicago, and I never heard that word. I bet, unless you live in a Spanish barrio in New York or California or Texas somewhere, you never heard that word morena or moreno either. Anyway, we discussed some of that in last week's show. After I did that show, I got a flurry of emails with people chiming in on the subject, like this one from Jed. He says, hey, Johnny, on the subject of skin tones in Latin America, one day my Latina friend gave me a rundown on her version of the different skin tones. She told me there are eight different skin tones in Latin America. She told me about each one, from white to black, in fairly good detail. The next day, I kept thinking about it. I thought, that's interesting. So I went on the internet to look at those eight different skin tones she was talking about. I did not find any official skin tone chart, but I did find tons of makeup companies with skin tone charts varying from six different skin tones to 106 different skin tones. So I think maybe my Latina friend probably got her skin tone classification system from a makeup chart, but who knows? Now, she herself was white. At least to me, she was white. But I do notice her makeup is usually lighter than her complexion really is. Could it be she's colorblind or does not have an artistic sensibility? I doubt it. It's a fact I've seen with many Latinas, especially lighter skin, more affluent ones. On the edges of their face, the makeup just doesn't match their skin tone. I'm not sure if they're trying to appear more white or they think they are more white than they really are. But anyway, these girls are tuned in to skin color for sure. Then he says, you know, Johnny, in Nicaragua, they have a skin tone called cheles, spelled C-H-E-L-E-S. Now, Johnny, when I was in Nicaragua with my Latina friend, she asked me if I ever saw a chele. I said, no, what's that? She said, white like you, but a Nicaraguan. Which confused me a bit, because white Nicaraguans are far and few in between. Anyway, a few days later, we were walking through a neighborhood, and she got excited and said, look, 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 there's a chile. So I looked. There was a kid playing in the street with blonde hair and blue eyes. Now, that's so rare that my friend was amazed. She acted like we were watching a bald eagle catching a fish or something. I just didn't get why she was so excited. Then she looked at me and said, do you see it? That kid's a real Nicaraguan. It was sort of strange. I wanted to leave because she was staring at that kid. So I said, yeah, 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 and kept on walking. She gave me a look like, you just don't get it, do you? Some Nicaraguans are white like you. Well, I get it now. Chellies are a real big deal in Nicaragua. And they have top pick in the dating pool. And many, many people desire them. They all want kids with blue or green or gray eyes. They want a chele in the family to dote on. Anyway, Johnny, thanks for the cool stories. Keep up the good work. Signed, Jed. Well, you know, just as an aside, I know Jed is not a boomer. He's probably an Xer or millennial. Why am I sure of that? Because boomers would never name a kid Jed. Nor Jethro, for that matter. Simply because there was a super famous show on TV back then called the Beverly Hillbillies. And if you know who Jed was, you know what I'm talking about. Come listen to a story about a man named Jed. Now, Jed, I'm not making fun of your name at all. Just laying down a little cultural factoid for you. Because, you see, by the time Generation X, Y, and Z came around, they weren't even running reruns of the Beverly Hillbillies anymore. So by, I'd say, 1980, there was no stigma attached to the name at all. So then, why am I bringing this up? Maybe to fill time? I don't know. (laughs) No, just voicing one of those crazy thoughts that sometimes pops into your head, you know? Though sometimes I guess I'm better off keeping my mouth shut. That's what my mom always said. Anyway, Jed, you hit a nerve with what you said about how your girlfriend uses makeup shades lighter than her actual skin color. Man, I've seen that exact thing happen with my own Latina girlfriends. You're absolutely spot on. I never thought to bring it up before, but you're absolutely right. Oh, and of course, a guy knows better than to ever bring up something like that to her. Just like you never tell your girl she looks fat in those jeans. Or tell your grandma her house smells like a cheap nursing home. But about that lighter-than-natural makeup thing. The problem is, once you've seen your own girlfriend do that, you start noticing it all around you. Here in Latin America, of course. I wonder, though, how much that happens with girls up in the States. I wouldn't know. But down here in Latin America, if you're paying attention, you'll notice it's a regular thing. You know, you're sitting at a restaurant or a coffee bar and the girl at the table next to you, she cocks her head a little bit, her hair moves, and you see a distinct gradient between where her real skin color ends and the lighter makeup color starts. Very strange because sometimes there's a real distinct difference. Oh, and if you're paying attention, if you go to one of those beachfront resorts, you'll see that lots of Latinas will not go out in the sun. And the ones that do use the heaviest SPF skin block possible. I think that's SPF 50 or 70 or something. Anyway, I've had a Latina girlfriend or two who absolutely refused to go into the sun. Though they're all for going to the beach and wearing the skimpiest bikinis possible. You have to like the fact that Latinas love wearing sexy clothes. Though there are exceptions. One Latina I know who's got an absolutely spectacular figure. You know, the kind of girl when she walks by, every guy drops his jaw and every girl elbows the guy she's with because he dares to look. Anyway, this girl does not wear sexy clothes. She quit wearing them a long time ago because she just gets bothered way too much. Hit on by every guy and every wolf in a pack. So she wears baggy kind of flowing things. Stylish, but stuff that doesn't cling. Anyway, I can claim with 100% certainty that unlike gringas, Latinas do not go on vacation to get a tan. That's the last thing they want to do. Now, when you go on vacation yourself to a resort, whatever, if you notice the shaded areas and the places with umbrellas are loaded with Latinas in beach chairs aiming to keep out of the sun. Why? Because they do not want to get any darker than the skin color they were born with. Suffice it to say, those quick tan spray products, the ones my sisters and all the white girls up in the States love to use, they have no need to stock in stores down here in Latin America. Down here, definitely a failed product line. So knowing that, what does that tell you about Latino and Latina society? Expat Eddie calls it the Michael Jackson effect. Just know that down here in Latin America it's a fact of life and it does somewhat play into your gringo advantage. Speaking of the gringo advantage, you heard me say that when gringos start piling in, soon enough our gringo advantage fades and sometimes gets obliterated. You know human nature, we like to see different people from different cultures when they dribble in. A drop at a time. The problem is, and I've seen this a million times, gringos pile into vacation sites and they let loose, make fools of themselves, and sometimes get in trouble with the law. It tends to reflect badly on the reputations of all of us gringos. There's nothing that kills the gringo advantage more than a gringo getting his face splattered in the local newspaper because he committed a crime or did something really stupid, ending in deportation or jail time. Because then the local population gets the impression that all gringos are somewhat like that. I'll give you a perfect example. In Medellin, Colombia, on February 1st, just a couple of weeks ago now, I'm looking at Colombia's biggest newspaper now. There's a headline that says, and I'll translate this here Naked Florida man falls out of tree onto taxi in downtown Medellin. Let me just read some of this for you, and there's pictures and all. It says, bystanders as well as a taxi driver were shocked Tuesday when at the intersection of Carretera 51D and Calle 59 in the Prado neighborhood just north of downtown Medellin, a naked Miami gringo either fell or leapt from a tree completely naked onto a passing taxi, severely damaging the car's roof and crushing the rear window. Yeah, right. If you were a Latino, that's exactly the kind of gringo you'd want hanging in your neighborhood. Exactly the kind of gringo you'd want dating your daughter, right? It goes on to say, though completely naked and without identification, witnesses indicated the man was a citizen of the U.S. due to the accent he had when questioned by the police. Later, it was confirmed he was from Florida. He was attended to by police in an ambulance, having suffered contusions and lacerations. The taxi was seriously damaged, though the driver appeared to have escaped serious injury. So that's Medellin, Colombia, a gringo-infested area if there ever was one. Now, you heard me talk about an expat in Cuenca, Ecuador, another gringo-infested area. A guy who was arrested a couple weeks ago in a road rage incident where he pulled out a gun and shot a guy. Well, that was front-page news all over Ecuador. Talk about putting a damper on the gringo advantage in that town. Man, I'll tell you, here in Latin America... When on the tourist trail in the local newspapers, gringos pop up all the time committing all kinds of crazy ass, even very serious crimes. Some of these cases make you cringe and there's no wonder people don't like gringos piling in. Listen to this. In Ecuador, they recently caught a gringo who was wanted on 126 sexual assault offenses in the U.S. Where'd he go? He escaped to Ecuador and has been living there for the past few years as a businessman. Freely sexually assaulting people in Ecuador, too. The guy's name was Peter Dietmer. He was arrested in the historic center of Cuenca, Ecuador, where he ran a gambling establishment there and preyed on underage women. When they picked him up in Cuenca, Ecuador, they ran his file through Interpol and found he was facing 125 counts of sexual assault. Yeah, when you hear things like that, you realize why the gringo advantage ain't what it used to be on the gringo tourist trail. And then you've got those U.S. spring break partiers coming down, wreaking all kinds of havoc in places like Cancun, Costa Rica, all the gringo tourist trail spots. But back to this gringo psychopath in Ecuador. So then you're wondering, how'd this guy get caught? Well, witnesses saw an assault involving a woman who appeared to be unconscious through a picture window with open curtains. They called the cops. Oh yeah, and the witnesses also reported it appeared the man was filming and photographing the woman who was naked, unconscious, and slumped on a chair. Yeah, right, those are the kind of gringo expat you want relocating to your town. Yeah, well, the thing is, a lot of gringo pedophiles and sexual deviants come down to Latin America because they know they can lure young underage kids with money and favors and get away with it for a long, long time. Because Latin cops, well, their job is to sit on their dead asses and do nothing. In fact, you long-time listeners, you long, long long-time listeners might remember me telling a story, probably was nine or ten years ago now, of a gringo buddy of mine, a school teacher at one of those private helicopter schools. When he first got down, he told me he was living in an apartment complex, and after a while, he noticed an older gringo who had an apartment down the hall. He'd see the guy on occasion coming in and out of his apartment door with a young, underage schoolgirl or boy. A totally inappropriate sort of thing. Now, I don't know the exact sequence of events, but he reported to the cops. But somehow, days later, when they finally showed up and they knocked on the guy's door and opened it, he vacated the apartment. That's one of the big problems I see. Gringos with bad intent come down to Latin America because they know they can get away with those things with ease. Some of them, I'm sure, get tripped up. Some of them never. But when they do and the news hits the local newspaper, it kills the gringo advantage in that town. Can you blame the locals? Why wouldn't they assume many gringos are perverts? Now, of course, it's not just American gringos trying to get away with perverted stuff like that. I've seen all kinds of those reports in the news. A lot of those guys turn out to be Europeans, Germans, Belgians. They come in all shapes and nationality. Though a lot of these guys, when you see their pictures, sometimes mug shots in the paper, have a certain unsavory look to them. So that stuff certainly exists. Now, it's a fact that many, many older gringos come to Latin American tourist sites To hang out at the strip clubs. They are different from the strip clubs up in Canada, the United States, and Europe. It's not so much that they're so much cheaper, it's that prostitution is legal and those strip clubs are all hooker joints. They've all got back rooms and the girls live there. They're available for sex, and it is completely legal. Places like that are everywhere on the Gringo Tourist Trail. And if you walk into those places any hour of day or night, you'll see older gringos hanging out. Some of those places The ones that are a little bit higher priced cater exclusively to gringo clientele. Yet another reason for Latinas and Latinos to become jaded toward gringos. What would your opinion be of gringos if you lived in that neighborhood? Not good, I bet. On the tourist trail, I've heard the saying, good girls don't date gringos. And you know, I hear lots of gringos and expats say, ones that are in the mating and dating game, they say, it's so hard to find a decent, well-grounded Latina girlfriend. A keeper. They say all I seem to run into is chapiadoras. Chapiadora here in Latin America is a gold digger. Chappi, for short. And my reply is you're looking for love in all the wrong places. You can't go into the bars and discos and those strip joints and find the wonderful woman of your dreams. And those Cupid and Tinder sites, those are minefields too. Well, I'm not saying you'll never find a diamond in the rough, though the odds are definitely not in your favor. However, it's a different story altogether when you're off the Gringo Tourist Trail. Though it's not to say you won't find gold diggers, you know, choppy off the Gringo Tourist Trail. You'll run into them all right. After all, they've got those Cupid and Tinder dating sites off the trail too. The internet is a cesspool. Anyway, there's a little more information for you. Just one more piece of the Plan B puzzle. All right, moving on. Here's an email that'll really get you to thinking. He says, Johnny, call me Bitcoin Boomer. I'm the listener who sent you the email regarding my travels in El Salvador a few months back. As you may know, I attended your seminar back in 2015. With that, let me provide a little background on what I'm going to present now. Back in 2015, I was listening to podcasts from Richard Martin, Max Kaiser, and you. He says I was also still immersed in worrying about climate change and listening to a guy named Guy McPherson, a radical climate change activist. He has a podcast called Nature Bats Last on Gary Knoll's Progressive Radio Network. However, it is the contents of his two podcasts that have nothing to do with climate change, but have direct implications with regard to Brett Weinstein and the Tucker Carlson interview that you characterized on a previous show. Specifically, what are the motives of the Chinese and the quasi-military camps in the Darien province where a half a million immigrants snuck through last year on their way to the United States. All right, me, Johnny, here. I'll paraphrase a little bit because some of you may not have heard my podcast last week where I talked about that Tucker Carlson, Brett Weinstein interview and the Darien invasion. He came across a secret camp of young Chinese guys working their way through to get to the United States. Anyway, our emailer, Bitcoin Boomer, goes on to say, My changing stance on climate change is the linchpin of this story. I was a professor at a major U.S. university, so I was sequestered in the liberal political abyss. In fact, I was listening to this Guy McPherson I mentioned above when I attended your seminar. He was basically saying that back in 2014, we only have a few years left before the Arctic ice cap melts, tripping the last and most important fail-safe for the planet. Remember, that was 10 years ago. He said we only had a few years left. He indicated that if the Arctic ice cap melts, we go into an irreversible total collapse of the planet. He predicted 2017 was the year the ice cap would be gone and we should prepare to go into hospice. Al Gore had predicted a date even earlier than that in his documentary, the one he got awards for and everyone gushed over. Obviously, all those years have gone by and I feel like a fool that I believed his so-called science. The ice cap is still intact and, in fact, has grown. Anyway, just to tell you, that's why I was listening to this guy back in the day. I was a climate change believer. Anyway, as mentioned, there were two Guy McPherson podcasts I have never forgotten, given my affinity for conspiracy theories. These two podcasts relate to your recent talk where you characterized the Brett Weinstein and Tucker Carlson interview. In that interview, Brett describes camps of migrants trying to get through the Darien Gap and up to the U.S. border. He says, while there were expected camps of migrants from around the world, Brett mentions there were separate camps specifically for military-age Chinese men. Outsiders were not allowed in these camps, and according to Brett, they were secretive and highly organized, which suggests a different motive for getting these migrants into the U.S. other than improving their individual economic situations. Brett Weinstein suggested they may be a fifth column, He also suggested the purpose of this quasi-military force, starting in the Darien and traveling with other migrants, might be a disguise to allow them to mix in with a group analogous to a Trojan horse strategy. However, the question Weinstein seemed to be wrestling with is, what could be the motive to trying to get a quasi-military Chinese force into the U.S. disguised as migrants? He says, I think that motive is in those two Guy McPherson podcasts from way back when. He says in those two podcasts that have stuck in my brain all these years, Guy McPherson was interviewing one of his ex students who had been working for the last 14 years as a consultant for the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, with his current role drawing up plans for dealing with large disasters. His name is Mark Austin, and the podcast was on December of 2015. Specifically, Mark said he was developing plans on how to decommission the 100 nuclear power plants in the U.S if there was some kind of nationwide disaster, like a depopulation event due to a pandemic that takes out, let's say, 90% of the population. He also mentioned that U.S. Homeland Security has many contingency plans. They are constantly updating them to deal with various depopulation scenarios. Remember, this is 2015, way before COVID. He also stated that most major countries were cooperating with the same efforts and therefore were aware of the plans if and when a depopulation scenario occurs. He also said this was widely known and discussed often within the Department of Homeland Security. He says, although it was not mentioned in those 2015 podcasts, the plans are very well aligned with the goals of the World Economic Forum, WEF, those globalists like Klaus Schwab, who are constantly talking about overpopulation. Mark, in his podcast, specifically mentioned Xi Jinping and how the Chinese are central In developing similar depopulation plans. He says, according to Mark, on his podcast of nine years ago, the U.S. and Western Europe seem to be the two populations that are most likely not to obey global mandates, WEF proclamations, etc., and therefore are number one and number two on the list for a planned depopulation event, like, for instance, an epidemic. He then mentioned, now remember, this is nine years ago, a plan that involved a pandemic that kills 90% of the U.S. population. And given that the remaining population and society would be in chaos and unable to maintain infrastructure, this is where the disaster plans begin. The plans involve the resources needed to initiate the event and contain the resulting chaos. For that, you need a large trained team. He indicated nine years ago now, These plans call for an outside force to implement those plans. He even puts a number on the size of the necessary team. They would first distribute the vials, the virus, whatever, to initiate the pandemic and then decommission the unattended nuclear power plants before they melt down. Now, I know he says all this sounds unbelievable, but it's right here in this podcast, which is in the archives at the PRN Network. And then he gives me the link. If any of you guys and gals out there want to hear it, send me an email, gmail.com. I'll send you the link. But here's where it gets even stranger. Mark was supposed to be scheduled the very next week to do a follow-up podcast. But there was an uproar over the podcast with a backlash from the government evidenced by the sophisticated trolls calling into the show that day. Guy, at the beginning of this second podcast, announced that Mark would not be on the podcast for the follow-up. But then, surprise, surprise, Guy took a call, and it was Mark that called in, trying to disguise himself and releasing even more bombshells. By the way, he says, if you listen, the best parts tend to be halfway through both podcasts. So putting all this together, it seems obvious. The Chinese force organizing down in Darien, Panama, fits the bill for what Mark calls the outside force or team. Personally, he says, I would like to get this information to Brett Weinstein, but I have no contact information. So I'm passing this information on to you, Johnny, should you, your listeners, be so inclined to pass it on. So basically, that's it, Johnny. Just a few more jagged pieces to the puzzle. Signed, Bitcoin Boomer. All right, Mr. Boomer, thanks for that. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. You're thinking conspiracy theory, tinfoil hat stuff, right? Well, if you heard those two podcasts back in 2015, it would have been easy to jump to those conclusions. By the way, don't you think it's a coincidence that in 2015, almost no one ever heard of the World Economic Forum or Klaus Schwab? You know, the you will own nothing and be happy guy? And then came COVID and a two-year worldwide lockdown. You know, no jab, no job. Hmm, just saying. By the way, since Bitcoin's been all over the news lately, it hit 50,000 again. And since Bitcoin is, once again, the most searched term on that dreaded, twisted search engine called Google, which, by the way, I never use. I use Brave, Startpage, or DuckDuckGo. If you were smart, you'd change right away, too. By the way, 90 to 95% of the expats I meet consistently use Google, too. However, isn't it funny that the expats I run into who are into Bitcoin, I'd say the majority don't use Google? They're on the start page, Brave browser and Duck, Duck Go train too, which sort of got me thinking that Bitcoin itself is a kind of an IQ test, because for one thing, it's an absolute given that if someone has Bitcoin, doesn't matter if they have .001 Bitcoin, a hundred bucks worth, that person is well above average. I know lots and lots of Bitcoiners, even Bitcoiners who own tiny amounts. I've never met a thick or dull one yet. And to further hone the point, when I meet someone and they say they're into Bitcoin, I ask them what year they first got in. That's an even more detailed IQ test. If they bought their first Bitcoin between 2015 and 2020, they're very smart. It's a guarantee. I really am talking about general intelligence here. And if a person got in before that, before 2015, you're talking about an exceptional, maybe even brilliant person. Because what we're talking about here is a complete class of nerds. Hey, I like nerds. Most engineers are nerds. Then the question is, am I a nerd? You know, nerds, like most anything, are on a particular scale. From mildly nerdish to extremely socially inept. For example, I know lots of engineering nerds who are socially capable. Though I have to admit, it usually takes a good woman to tidy up their house, their hygiene, and their wardrobe. In any event, you could always tell if a nerd has a girlfriend or not. Take Elon Musk, for example. The classic nerd with a girlfriend or wife prototype. Have you ever seen pictures of that guy before he was famous? Before he made Dime One, thus before women ever took notice of him, or let's say his massive earning power. The guy was a rumpled mess. He used to sleep on people's couches and had a diet of pizza and coke, spent 18 hours a day on his computer, half of it gaming with guys in Bulgaria and China. It took a lady or series of ladies to dust him off and clean him up, you know, get him to floss, shower, and brush his teeth regularly. One of his ladies even talked him into getting a hair transplant. So then am I a nerd? You know, I've never thought of myself that way, but I have lots of nerdy friends. It could be guilt by association. Though I've never considered myself to be 100% in their camp. But I have had more than one girlfriend accuse me of being a nerd. The question is, is that a slur or a compliment? That's definitely a slur if you're called that in high school. But it cuts both ways because you know a nerd is never the life of a party. Not the guy you want to sit next to at a wedding bash. However, once a nerd hits his late 20s, it's almost always a backhanded compliment. I think these days, every lady who hits 30 would love to settle down with a nerd, mostly because it's guaranteed economic and financial security. But younger ladies, ladies in their 20s and late teens, they want a slick, fashionable hip-with-the-trip guy, which often doesn't end well. The thing is, I've always had nerd friends, and I hold on to their coattails, which makes me appear to be smarter than I really am. Oh, and get this, every nerd I know has Bitcoin. That's another reason that for me, Bitcoin's a damn good IQ test. That said, I got two questions for you. Number one, got Bitcoin yet? Number two, how's that plan B coming? You've been listening to The Expat Files, living in Latin America. If you need some help with your own Plan B, we can schedule a one-on-one phone or Skype consult. Just send me an email, theexpatfiles at gmail.com. And if you want to get on the waiting list for my next week-long Expat Insider Seminar in Central America, where you're guaranteed to get a two- to five-year head start on your Plan B, send me an email, theexpatfiles at gmail.com. Nos vemos.